From the souks, markets, and bazaars of the Middle East, Europe, and Africa to the suburban shopping mall and now the internet, one unassailable truth has remained consistent. Wherever humanity has chosen to gather, retail has never been far behind. Perhaps at no other time in history has the future whereabouts of consumers become less predictable and the future of retail more complex. After all, the pandemic threw into question the nature of work, education, and communication, and almost every other aspect of life. Even the daily ritual of commuting came to a halt during the lockdowns, impacting the millions of businesses, media networks, and service providers who at the time depended on that daily migration of consumers for their survival. I'm Doug Stevens, founder of Retail Profit, and in this second season of Retail Reborn, the Business of Fashion's podcast series on the fast-changing retail industry presented by Brookfield Properties, we're exploring the consumer of the future. We'll discover who they are, the economic, technological, and social realities they face, and the new consumer behaviors emerging that will shape the future of retail and the opportunities for retailers ahead. And so, in this first episode, we thought it proper to begin with the question, where will consumers shop? As the world resumes business as usual, but in a new normal. A question that brings us to one of the most central sites of retail anthropology, the city. But today, amidst a lingering pandemic, that might be changing. London's population is all set to decline for the first time in the 21st century. Major cities may now see a double impact as residents debate riding it out or leaving for more space. With the pandemic, stories of urban exodus and white-collar worker flight abound. Stories of urban denizens pulling up their city routes and dispersing to less populous locales, taking with them a significant share of the income and wealth major cities have enjoyed. Will global cities as we have known them and the retail economies they support endure as they have through the ages, or will this time be different? It's a fair question to ask. After all, go to any street corner in any major metropolis and look around you. Chances are most of what sits inside your field of vision is a manifestation of the industrial world, built to serve an industrially-based society. But populating these same cities are people, most of whom are products of the digital age. Begging the question, in a post-digital and now pandemic-stricken world, has the city, as a concept, outlived its utility and appeal? And if so, what does it mean for the labyrinth of retail that has deeply woven itself into those same cityscapes around the globe? So the death of cities has been predicted and foretold endlessly, and especially in this country, because first of all, we have a long tradition in the United States of uh, a certain anti-urbanist skepticism of cities and the value of urban life. That's Tom Campanella. He's an urbanist, historian, and professor of urban planning and architectural history at Cornell University. He's also the historian-in-residence for the New York City Parks Department. Tom's written numerous books examining both the history and future of global cities. I caught up with him from his home in New York City. And so it's been 
you know, almost gleefully predicted that, aha, now we know they're doomed. You know, the city is doomed. And the advent of information technology really brought about a, a very enthusiastic round of naysaying or predictions of the inevitable decline of cities. What really happened instead was the exact opposite, right? Cities and their values, values of density, of diversity, of that wonderful serendipity of meeting people from all different walks of life that you would never meet living in semi-isolation out in the suburbs, right? The rich array of amenities close at hand that a city offers, the ease of transportation, of walkability, of getting on the subway or the light rail and being able to move around very quickly. And all these affordances became even more valued in the information age when we had the ability to be anywhere. Where did many of us choose to be? In the city, right? And especially younger generations. And he's right. Through wars, natural disasters, economic crises, and yes, even past pandemics, cities have repeatedly proven resilient. It's also true that the most current urban renaissance of the 1990s and 2000s was indeed led largely by young people seeking proximity to just the sort of amenities, transportation, and diverse experiences that cities offer. One report noting, for example, that populations in large city centers in England and Wales more than doubled between 2001 and 2011, with the number of residents aged 20 to 29 nearly tripling. From Toronto to Tokyo and hundreds of cities in between, the same historic pattern played out as young people ditched their rural and suburban roots for city life. As a result, it's become highly valued. You know, it's standard economics, supply and demand. And so a lot of younger families are discovering that they, especially once they have children, they can't afford to stay in Williamsburg or Dumbo or parts of San Francisco or Boston or other cities. So they are discovering or they're spreading out. And and some of them are kind of probing gingerly at the suburban question. Like maybe suburbia is not so bad, you know. To Campanella's point, even before the pandemic, there were early indications that millennials in many developed countries were leading a quiet exodus out of the city and into the suburbs, smaller towns, and even the countryside in search of affordability. When the pandemic hit, it only sped the migration. A recent report from Price Waterhouse projects that the population of London, for example, will suffer a decline for the first time in the 21st century. A study by the San Francisco Chronicle revealed net out-migration from the San Francisco and San Jose regions was roughly 116,000 in 2020, up from about 64,000 in 2019. In Japan, a 2021 government report noted about one-third of people in their 20s and 30s living in the greater Tokyo area had taken steps in the past six months to move to rural Japan, with almost 45% of Japanese 20-somethings saying they were interested in leaving major cities. In response to the shift both before and during the pandemic, developers, particularly in North America, have clamored to export many of the dimensions and qualities that urban environments offer into the suburbs and exurbs of major cities. Walkable, mixed-use spaces with mass transit infrastructure, once the mainstay of inner cities, 
have increasingly become just a few of the must-have elements of Suburbia 2.0. From Campanella's point of view, however, simply replicating the elements of cities in the suburbs ignores the remarkable efficiencies that large cities provide, particularly from an environmental standpoint. There's this old trope of the city as this infernal machine, right? Consuming enormous amounts of resources and energy and spewing out all sorts of gases and toxins and garbage. And so there's this image that the city is profoundly unsustainable, profoundly an assault of sorts on the natural world. In fact, the opposite is true right? Cities are remarkably efficient machines for human civilization. You know, the greenest place, arguably, in North America. It's not some pious little town in Vermont. It's not, you know, some farmstead in Iowa. It's Manhattan. It's the densest part of New York City. Why? Well, because a mile of Sewer infrastructure, water line, electrical line, gas line will serve thousands of people, whereas that same mile out in the suburbs might serve 20 or 10 McMansions, right? Very efficient. What your neighbors in an apartment building like where I am right now, they're not just your neighbors, they're your insulation, right? You have people living above and below you on either side, they're keeping you warm. You know, one of the least efficient ways of living is to have your own single freestanding frame house, which is constantly under siege by the elements and the weather. And then you've got the uh, transportation affordances of density, right? To move a huge number of people by rail or by bus. So cities are remarkably efficient machines. And now a word from Adam Tritt, the chief development officer of our sponsor, Brookfield Properties, sharing his insights on retail from a real estate perspective. I think as you see this next generation start to move and expand and have families, the boundaries between the urban core and the inner ring suburbs is getting a little bit blurry. And our ability to provide fulsome urban style offerings in that inner ring of suburbs allows for a lot of interesting energy as we look to the future of these properties. The question is, in the face of a marathon pandemic, could that very same density Campanella points to that gives cities so much of their environmental sustainability take on a more sinister complexion? Will our lingering fears of viral spread and physical closeness persist beyond the current crisis? They will vaporize like the morning mist. Because if fear of density had such grip on the human imagination, we would have walked away from cities after the first outbreak of the plague in Roman times or during the Middle Ages. I mean, epidemic disease has been with us as long as we've had human civilization. Cities have endured all sorts of assaults of the microbial and viral sort. And they've persisted, right? We've had yellow fever and cholera and plague and malaria and typhoid. So yes, of course, density does play a role in the expeditious spread of a virus or a bacteria. At the same time, it's easy to overblow that because uh, some of the densest cities in the world, Seoul, Hong Kong, actually fared better than our less dense cities here in the United States during the COVID crisis. So for Campanella and many of his colleagues, cities aren't going anywhere. 
While we may see a temporary out-migration, particularly among white-collar workers with portable professions, for Campanella, it's simply part of an historic ebb and flow. If anything, he says, we are likely to see the rise of more megacities, those with populations of 10 million or more. So will cities rebound and reclaim their economic, cultural, and social importance? there's good historical precedent to suggest they will, at least to some extent, although that rebound may be experienced unevenly across geography. And while it is true, as Tom Campanella points out, that our relationship with technology has never fully extinguished our on-again, off-again love affair with cities, it's also quite likely that we will have a very different relationship with them this time around. One recent study commissioned by a trio of U.S. economists suggests that, in the West at least, we may be settling into a new normal for white-collar work, with anywhere from 30 to 40 percent of workdays being remote. In Canada, one recent poll suggested that a full 75 percent of Canadians feel their commuting frequency will be permanently diminished in the aftermath of the pandemic. Even in countries like Japan, long known for their unyielding in-office work culture, a rethink has taken shape as workers have been afforded more freedom to work remotely. This potentially permanent decline in commuting and daily urban population swell is sure to impact businesses who rely on that traffic for revenue and the vast media networks that depend on it for precious eyeballs. So while it's true that cities have endured technological progress, we have also never possessed the sorts of technologies that could largely replicate the physical experiences, including in-person shopping, that cities have afforded. But all that may be about to change. Big tech, big brands, big ambitions. People and companies are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into the vision of the metaverse. It's the emerging industry of virtual worlds where you can go to a concert, visit a shop or a party without ever leaving your home. There may be no consumer technology prospect driving more discussion and investment right now than the metaverse. And for good reason. The metaverse, essentially a parallel reality consisting of connected and interoperable worlds brought to life by technologies including augmented and virtual reality, has the potential to alter not only our consumer lives, but our entire way of living. So what precisely is this new reality and how will it change consumer behavior? Who better to take those questions to, I thought, than the person many refer to as the godmother of the metaverse. I think when we talk about the metaverse, right, and with capital M, we're talking about the future of the internet. Kathy Hackle is a speaker, writer, and technology consultant with deep experience working with and for pioneering companies like Magic Leap, HTC Vive, and others in the fields of augmented and virtual reality. She is widely regarded as one of the leading authorities on the developing metaverse. And as she sees it, there is indeed a new learning curve for business people around what the metaverse is. And perhaps even more importantly, she says, what it is not. So I try to explain it to people. I talk about the past, where we were and where we're heading, so they can start to wrap their heads around this, right? So Web 1.0 connected information, and you got the internet, that changed a lot of things. Then Web 2.0 connected people, and you got, you know, social media, and got the sharing economy, and you got a lot of different things, and it changed a lot in the business of fashion, of course. 
where is the evolution of Web 2.0 going into Web 3.0? And Web 3.0 connects people, places, and things, or people, spaces, and assets. And sometimes these people, spaces, and assets can be in a fully virtual environment. And I think this is where the biggest misconception is, is that you know sometimes it is in a fully virtual environment, but it's not only in a fully virtual environment. It can also be in our real world, in our physical world, with some level of augmentation and data and, and things in front of us and surrounding us. So I have a pretty expansive view of what the metaverse is, including both our physical world and the virtual spaces we spend time in. The metaverse, as I too have learned, is a topic rife with misconceptions. For example, many believe the metaverse exists today, which, technically speaking, it does not. Some take the metaverse to be something driven entirely by virtual reality, which it is not. Others believe one company or group of companies will own it. Facebook, for example, with its recent name change to Meta, seems to have positioned itself in the minds of many as the de facto general contractor building the metaverse. Nothing, according to Hackle, could be further from the truth. I think the really important thing for people to understand is that that greater vision of the metaverse, right? The metaverse is enabled by many different technologies. So it's got many different components that need to be in place for it to be truly enabled. AR and VR are an entry point. Uh, our mobile phones are an entry point as well. So AR and VR are part of this, but there's also blockchain, NFTs, there's AI, there's 5G, there's edge computing, and there's a long list, but there's many different technologies that enable the creation of the metaverse. So when someone says like Facebook is building the metaverse, you know, that's not accurate. They're really focusing on the entry point. Let's say the AR and VR side of things and content, a few things, but they're not necessarily focused on the connectivity side, like 5G. You know, they have cable and they have some data centers and everything, but they're not necessarily the giant player in, in, in cloud, right? So there are many different parts that need to come together. And there's different companies building different parts to enable the metaverse. So I hope not one single company builds it. You know, that would be pretty dystopic as it currently stands. No single one company can own it. And while no one company may own the metaverse, already many are lining up to buy a piece of it. A myriad of brands as diverse as Nike and Walmart are placing huge bets on the idea that billions of dollars will be spent on goods, both virtual and physical, in the nascent building blocks of the metaverse, platforms such as Roblox, Fortnite, Decentraland, and Sandbox, to name just a few. And far from simply replicating physical store designs in the virtual space, brands are rethinking both the product itself and the experiences they place around them, leaning heavily into things like gamification, virtual products, and large-scale entertainment experiences. One also can't help but notice another conspicuous and unexpected trend. That being that while fashion, luxury, and big-box retail brands for decades proved to be many of the most reluctant to engage in e-commerce, they are now leading the charge into the metaverse. Balenciaga, LVMH, Dolce & Gabbana, Burberry, and Gucci, to name just a few, are rapidly porting their luxury offerings into a fast-developing array of interactive platforms. Even virtual real estate is being snapped up in places like Decentraland, with one company recently paying the equivalent of $2.4 million for a virtual 6,000-square-foot estate in the platform's fashion district, where it intends to become a destination for virtual fashion shows. So what's different this time around? 
Why are brands and retailers literally lining up to get into the emerging metaverse? I think it's two things. I think it's they finally got that they should have been a player in Web 2.0. They finally realized, wow, there's a lot of potential revenue opportunity here and a lot of potential eyeballs. And some of them missed the boat, right? Some of them just didn't go with it. And, you know, they're still very relevant because it's still luxury, right? That we cannot get away from that. There's still an element of allure and importance with the luxury. But I think that the brands that I talk to, and I do a lot of work with many luxury fashion brands, and, you know, some of them I can disclose, some I can't. But I think that they're interested in understanding the consumer of the future, right? And understanding, you know, where the younger generations, the Gen Alphas, you know, Gen Z as well, but Gen Alpha really, uh, where they're inhabiting, what are their habits? What do they like to buy? And they're starting to realize that in this metaverse that we're going into, we will remain physical beings in a physical world, that we will have a very active digital lifestyle. And it is at the end of the day about digital ownership of digital assets, right? And how does a luxury fashion brand start to think about the high net worth individual of the future that likes to consume digital assets that might be traceable on the blockchain? So, you know, I'll, I'll give you some examples. I worked with Clinique, with the Estee Lauder companies. Clinique was the first brand to do a non-fungible token. And our focus was not on putting crypto art and selling it out there. The focus was on utility and community and bringing the people that are already loyal to the brand, you know, to share their stories. They, the way they transacted was in the form of stories. They submitted stories of optimism. And then a few people are going to be selected to get only three NFTs. The first NFTs that Clinique is putting out, they're called Meta Optimist, and that's going to give them access to many different things, including, you know, 10 years of, of makeup and, you know, early access to crowd favorites like Black Honey, which is sold out around the world. No one can get their hands on it. Hackle's reference to non-fungible tokens or NFTs reminds me of a quote by venture capitalist Chris Dixon, who famously said, the next big thing will start out looking like a toy. A notion that I think aptly describes the breakout phenomenon of NFTs, digital assets commanding both media attention and jaw-dropping prices. This here pixelated ape face, which you could quite easily screenshot right now, go ahead, honestly, just do it, is apparently worth 1.2 million US dollars. Sure, many today might shake their heads at the enormous sums of money being spent on what appear to be no more than digital doodles and animated stuff. But according to Hackle, beyond the current toy-like products, the true value of NFTs as a means of assigning value, authenticity, and ownership of assets is only in its infancy. Yeah, NFTs are going to evolve, right? Right now we're in the beginning stages in some ways of, of the NFT craze and hype. You know, there's a lot of NFT projects and there will probably be a market correction at some point. But what I will say is that for brands, and this is really important when I work with the brands, once again, it's about ownership. It's about digital ownership of digital assets, right? And being able to, in some ways, for your loyal customers, for your fans, it's almost like they're envisioning being part of the brand, right? In a way they have never been able to be before. But also the secondary market with NFTs. So when you have an NFT, let's say I create an NFT I sell it in a marketplace and someone buys it because it is on the blockchain and because there is a smart contract, it will be written into that smart contract that if anyone sells it, I myself as a creator will still get a percentage every time it's sold on the secondary market. That is powerful. That is very powerful for brands like Hermes, they sell a Birkin bag. The Birkin bag gets sold in the secondary market. They never see a penny of that secondary market. Well, that changes things. Now, every time that, you know, that whether it's a physical Hermes or whether it's a digital item that they might sell, they will always get a cut in perpetuity of this physical item being sold in the secondary market. 
And it may be this very idea that is so compelling for brands across the fashion and luxury spectrums. Not only do NFTs offer the opportunity to assign value and ownership to a new universe of digital products and experiences, but the underpinning blockchains they are recorded on may also offer the ability to connect physical products to smart contracts. In essence, giving the brand the ability to command a royalty every time a product is resold in the secondary market, much the way a song, artwork, or any other creative property might be. And with the global resale apparel market projected to grow to twice the size of the fast fashion market by 2030, such royalties would be worth pursuing. So, what will the metaverse ultimately be? How will we truly interact with it and within it? And what will it mean for the future of our consumer behavior? According to Hackle, the answers aren't crystal clear just yet. Although she believes it will ultimately permeate every aspect of our lives, including where and how we shop. The next decade, she says, will be pivotal. We don't know yet, right, what it's going to look like. We can envision it and we can come to it maybe from an informed perspective. But yeah, I think it's going to change. It's going to change how you talk to your family. It's going to change how you shop. It's going to change how you try on clothes. At the end of the day, we're talking to an audience right now in the business of fashion, you know, luxury it's going to change how we perceive luxury. It's going to change the way luxury brands engage with creators and consumers. And it's going to give them an opportunity to reinvent themselves in a new way. So to me, it's very exciting because we're building it right now. The, the next 10 years, this is what I tell everyone, this next 10 years, this decade is such an important decade for building that this is the time where brands need to start to think about what are we building? How do we start building? You know, what does our brand become? These 10 years are critical. Ultimately, given that on a global basis, upwards of 80% of all retail is transacted in the physical world, one of the most important questions regarding where consumers will shop seems to be, in a future world that includes the metaverse, will brick and mortar retail stores still be relevant? I don't think it makes them less valuable or less important. It changes them. Right. Because once again, I always go back to we're physical people in a physical world and the metaverse to me, my expansive view of it includes the physical world. Right. So it's just going to make them different. If I have a wearable glasses that I'm wearing in front of my face and I can augment what people see and I can augment what people hear that gives retail a different opportunity. You know, sometimes we will want to go to the store, but it will be a lot more experiential. A point I couldn't agree with more. After all, we are human, kinetically inclined creatures at heart. Even in China, where approximately 50% of retail commerce is transacted online, stores play an important role in marrying physical and social experiences to the distribution of products. For evidence, one need look no further than Alibaba.com's vast pre-pandemic investments in brick-and-mortar department stores, grocery chains, and shopping malls. So physical experiences in retail are not likely to be supplanted completely by any technology, including the metaverse. And yet, if we're honest, this promise of experiential retail is something many brands have aspired to, but few have delivered on, exacerbating the fallout in the industry. But as cities lose swaths of legacy physical retail, it's opening fertile ground for a new generation of retailer bringing a completely different take on this notion of experiences. Sonny and I have been friends for a long time, and honestly, it just started with a conversation, and we ended up here. 
And I guess the here that we ended up in was where that whole conversation, you know, kind of landed on as a thesis. It's like the whole world saying retail is dead. And if that's true, then who killed it? Well, if the internet killed it, then what's true about the internet? Well, what's true about the internet is content and content creators. Okay, great. Where are they on the sidewalk? They're nowhere. So we went out and figured out a model that could bring them there. That's Eden Malul, who, along with business partner Sonny Gindi, is co-founder of a company called Store. That's S-T-O-U-R, the company that powers the Allure Beauty Store in Soho, New York. I got to know the duo when they invited me on as an advisor to what I saw as a unique concept. Under a license agreement with Condé Nast Publishing, the Allure store offers a completely different take, not just on the beauty category, but on the core economic model for retail. Because what Malul and Gindi recognized was that the very thing preventing brands from mounting truly unique experiences was their adherence to an antiquated business model and the transactional relationships it propagated. You see, the Allure store doesn't really set out to sell products, but rather editorial authority, unique content, and trust. All of which, they say, converts to an effective and cost-efficient customer acquisition vehicle for the brands they work with. All of which are approved by the editorial team at Allure magazine. I guess for anyone who's not familiar, the way that stores work is that brand partners will come in, and pay what is called a slotting fee to have a spot in the store merchandised under a headline that's descriptive of the product and similar products to it. What you get in return for that package is a spot at the store under this headline for 90 days. You get the opportunity to host up to three events. Certain slots uh, allow you to actually host more than that. We create a bunch of bespoke content around your product during that time period. You're posted on our social channels. You participate in influencer gifting programs and roundups multiple times per quarter. Effectively, it's a marketing suite of services inside of a physical retail environment. And you keep 100% of the sales that your product generates while it's in the store. Eden's partner, Sunny, explains the concept further. I'll back up a little bit and talk about why the Allure store isn't a retail store. So uh, we've been open for six months and we offer brands a lot of different reasons why they should work with us. You know, we have an influencer seating program in the store where we see, you know, 300 influencers come in a quarter and we give each of them a gift bag of products that our brands send in specific for that program. This also happens to break the ice between brands and influencers and helps them build relationships. We offer first party metrics through our dashboard that brands are able to see and learn from. So there's a lot that we do and, and that we offer to our brands and that, you know, we kind of try and shift the conversation from this being a typical retail store to this being much more than that. But the thing that, re- that we've been really seeing, why the reason why we exist, what we do very well, and that's our events program. So every brand who is in the store is able to use our space as their own venue, as their own pop-up, three times a quarter. No charge, it's part of the package. And we've seen about 420 bookings in six months. That's about three events a day. It's wild. But beyond simply providing a uniquely curated space for experiences and events, Malul and Gindi have also fundamentally reimagined the nature of the relationship between a retailer and the brands it carries. Retailers have to stop thinking that 
brands are vendors. Retailers have to start thinking that brands are their clients and that they're here to service them. A simple but profound psychological shift that they maintain drives not only a new model for revenue, but also an entirely different value for consumers. Value that they say hinges on auditioning and casting talented in-store ambassadors, and then using the store as a studio and a stage to create physical and digital content. In essence, turning the store into a living, breathing media channel for every brand they represent. And with the rocketing costs and increasingly marginal effectiveness of digital advertising, their approach to using physical retail as a media channel is proving highly effective. So when we build our experience, we hire people who are able to deliver value that our brands would appreciate, that are part of a package, that are part of a service, right? That comes down to content. All of our salespeople, they're not called salespeople, they're called beauty guides. And these beauty guides aren't hired from Sephora or hired from Blue Mercury or a different retail store. They're hired based off of their experience creating content. Are they comfortable on camera? Do they create beauty and skincare content? Are they engaging? That's the first thing we look for when it comes to employees because their job is much more than selling products. Their job is creating content for our brands. So that's one piece. The second piece is when we look at locations, we look at locations that are big enough to host events for our brands. And then we also hire production teams. We have a full-time video content production team that's in-store creating bespoke content for our brands who is there on site at every single event, creating videos for our brands, capturing photography for our brands. So then the brand is able to use this for their own channels. So we really did rethink this, this whole retail experience and, and, and we try to change the conversation and what would be deemed valuable for the brands who are participating. What Gindi and Malul found out early is that Hiring not merely retail workers, but truly talented and influential content creators comes at a premium. A premium, they say, they're happy to pay. I think whether it comes at a premium or not, we don't know because we just signed up for the premium right out the gate. And we decided that it was worth a premium and to hire for it and pay it as a premium. And so when we looked at the competitive hourlies for New York City retail jobs, we came in at about 30% higher per hour. And for us, it felt like it made more sense. And we just leaned into the idea that it was already going to be valuable and that we'd attract better talent, right? If we were willing to, to pay for it outright. A wage premium, they say, is on average 30% above market. But according to the partners, it's money well spent. And while many retailers today seek to build communities of customers, Gindi and Malou will see it somewhat differently, working to build a sense of community among their brand partners, hosting what they refer to as a dating service for brands that can work together in a complementary way to stage unique events. We run a Slack channel with all of our brands, and a brand is able to put in their brief of their event and ask if brands want to collaborate on their event. And for our Q4 launch, we had you know, a big event where we had you know, four or five of our brands activate. We had Dyson doing hair. We had Sunday Rally giving facials. We had R&Co touching up your hair after you get your hair blown. It was like a, a total wonderland. And for any skeptics listening to this, the results of all this unconventional thinking appear to speak for themselves. They had over 2,000 people wait online for their event. And then the transaction to get their prize, their samples, was the person's email. 
So that day, for two hours of activating at the store, you walked away with 2,000 emails of high-intent customers. Despite early success, Gindi and Malul don't for a moment assume they've got it all figured out. Instead, they say it's a matter of constantly listening to consumers, brands, and the market. We're constantly changing. We're constantly listening to what's going on outside and trying to bring it in to create experiences that are native and organic to both of our brands and consumers. So while many things today remain uncertain, what seems clear is that as we emerge from the pandemic, we are returning to a world that has shifted. A world that has been rocketed through a wormhole in time, leading us out of the industrial era of retail and the reliably predictable consumer whereabouts that it offered. And as for physical stores and shopping venues seeking to survive in the face of our ever closer relationship with technology, it will mean rethinking every aspect of retail, from the inherent purpose of a physical store to the economic model for revenue. Retail spaces must develop beyond being mere storehouses for product and instead become stages and studios for remarkable experiences and content. Because in the long term, Cities, along with all physical experiences, including retail, will find unprecedented competition in the form of a fast-emerging metaverse, aiming to offer both a parallel reality and economy for us to live, work, and shop in. Tune in next week when we discover which consumers will be the dominant force in retail and what factors will impact their expenditure. Subscribe to Retail Reborn to ensure you never miss an episode of Retail Reborn Season 2 presented by Brookfield Properties. Until next time, I'm Doug Stevens.